Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network podcast in media and communications and language. My name is Lee Pierce, she, hers pronouns, and I am at the State University of New York at Geneseo. And I'm very excited to have with me today, Dave Dillon, who is the author of an open educational resource textbook, which is something we haven't had on the podcast before. I'll talk more about that in a moment. The title is Blueprint for Success in College and Career. Dave is over at Grossmont College. And while we typically don't do textbooks on the New Books Network, I'm excited to bring this project on because, first of all, it's an open educational resource, meaning that's, so OER for sure is what we'll call it, meaning it's available for anyone under the Creative Commons license. The other reason is that a lot of our listeners on the New Books Network are not only academics and generally educated readers, but also teachers, people who are involved in campus administration and college life, and even family members and supporters of students. And I really just think that this is a unique opportunity to bring a resource to you that's absolutely free, very, very good, and useful for a variety of applications. And I'm also happy to announce that Blueprint for Success recently won an award from the textbook, it won the textbook, sorry, this is a hard one to say. It won the Textbook Excellence Award from the Textbook and Academic Authors Association. Dave, are you with me? I am. Great. And one thing I did forget to mention is that Blueprint for Success was published under the Creative Commons license from Rebus Community Press. All right. So Dave, uh, you want to say hello? And you use he, his pronouns, correct? I do. Great. Will you say hello to our listeners? Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. So this is a big deal. I've heard a lot, I heard a lot about this book before I came to know it. I've used it a lot in advising. Um, and I just quickly want to read, and you can kind of guess what this is. It, it the, the scope of this book is really breathtaking. It's, it's 60 chapters or something like that that cover every possible imaginable thing that maybe a college student, especially a contemporary college student, could encounter. And I think one of the reviewers for the book from the Textbook Excellent Award summed it up when they said that the book um, should be valued for making succeeding in college possible for a wide audience. It is a straightforward, useful, and accessible textbook that makes it easier to navigate college and develop skills for succeeding beyond the classroom. And that's really one of the things that I really like about this book. And part of the reason I brought it on the podcast is because you know people have to learn how to do college and being successful you know, it's an inner language, and that's part of the reason we're on the language channel. And we forget that, that this isn't something that a lot of people are just born knowing or, or are raised in that kind of situation. And as colleges become more first generation, more non-traditional students, uh, we are going to need ways to catch them up on some of that tested knowledge that we lose, uh, I think, I think rightly so, as we start to democratize education. So do you want to say a little bit about the book and what brought it into being? Sure. Thank you again for this opportunity and and saying kind things about um, the project. Um, I think to to your point, uh, we as educators often expect students to know uh, exactly how to navigate through college. And the truth is that many students 
never learn the skills that are needed in order to be successful or they're they're learning them on their own or they're learning them after the fact that it would have been useful for them to know from the beginning. Um, so this textbook was created for a number of reasons. One, it's for a class that I teach uh, on my college at Grossmont in San Diego, uh, College and Career Success, but it's also created for any college student who is either looking to gain new skills and strategies for learning and how to navigate the culture of college, and also for uh, students that might just need a refresher for how to, to study or, um, or how to effectively use time management or um, maybe to figure out what they're going to do for their major or, or choose on their career. Um, and then I'm going to launch into really how this book came came about from the beginning, if that's okay. Take it away. Okay. Um, so I don't know if if in outside of California uh, there is the same term that that we use called freeway flyers, but um, it's a common term for part time. Uh, instructors or adjuncts. Um, so we refer to freeway flyers as those that are working in multiple districts or multiple colleges, and they're they're literally getting to the maximum amount of what they can, um, where they can work, and then uh, on the freeway getting to the next college or the next district um, to to teach more classes or or counsel more students, and so. Um, in, in that experience, at one point, I was working in four different districts at the same time and really feeling fortunate to be able to have the um, learning materials for that particular class on that particular day and time at that particular campus and, and sort of going crazy and thinking that it was strange that I would only be using this textbook at this college with these learning materials and these assignments and, and these exams and then something completely different for roughly the same class somewhere else. But because of copyright restrictions, um, I wasn't legally able to really share materials back and forth. Um, and so the result of some of that, um, that uh, moment of thinking that I was going nuts was to say, I think I know enough about this field to be able to create my own resource um, and if I was ever going to get to be full-time professor, then that was what I was going to set out to do. So I was fortunate to become full-time in 2007 and um, set out on this project to create a textbook for a one-unit study skills and time management class that I was teaching at the time. Um, and I, I projected that that was going to take about two years. and. Um, very, that was a very naive projection. It, it actually took five years. Um, there were two national publishing offers along the way. One was from a, a large publishing um, company. One was from a small one. Neither of them seemed like the right fit for what I thought I was trying to accomplish, which was really just to be able to use the content um, for my classes and then um, and find a way to share it out with other instructors that might be interested in the same materials. And um, 
publishers, I just wasn't confident that they were going to market it in a way that um, I thought was going to be useful. The the other one, um, there were some discussions about content control that that I wasn't comfortable with. And the main goal for me was was never to make profit. It was to be able to have the best content for the students that I was teaching. And so um, I, I passed on those hoping that I wasn't going to regret it and kind of accidentally found um, Montezuma Publishing, which is on the San Diego State University campus, the University Press. And uh, they specialized in doing readers for professors who were um, creating things similar to what I was trying to create. And I was very happy working with them. They did the formatting and the binding, um, helped with the cover uh, design. And I had hired uh, my own editor. And then we put together this roughly 100-page textbook that came out with a traditional copyright. This is before I knew about OER. And um, one thing that was really important to me even then, um, this is now 2014, was the price of the textbook for students. So Montezuma and I had negotiated a $29 price that this was going to be um, sold for the bookstores to students. And I thought that that was reasonable for for what it was. Um, We couldn't get it any lower than that because of the the small print run. Um, But I I was pleased that that wasn't... um, a 100 or 200 or 300 or $400 textbook. Um, and shortly after that, I realized that my bookstore had marked that up in less than a year to $42. And that was um, terribly alarming to me. And, and I was starting to see firsthand that the barrier, even at $29 for some, for some students to be able to purchase the text was um, was something that was causing them not to have the text in the class, which, of course, is the purpose of, of having the textbook, is, is to put it in your students' hands. And so at $42, I was really thinking, um, that's, that's really more than what I want students to be paying for, and what might I be able to do to try to address that challenge? And it was about then that I started to learn more about what OER, Open Educational Resources, are. And I, I was certainly not ready at the beginning. I think I had a reaction uh, that might be typical for most faculty when they start to learn about OER. I had questions like, what about quality? And what about accessibility? And what about peer review? Um, what about, uh, print options, sustainability, um, a lot of those questions. And and I didn't know where I could get information to, to answer them. Um, but as I got further along, I not only learned more about, um, the, the dramatic increase in textbook prices over the last 10, 20, 30 years, um, which is contributing to, uh, student debt, and also the direct relationship between textbook costs and student success. So for instance, um, there are, are many studies that are pointing out that somewhere between 50 and 60% of college students are not purchasing textbooks at some point in their college career 
strictly due to cost. Um, and, and when I started looking at that, I started looking at OER in a, in a slightly different way, thinking, could this be an option for me? Could I find those answers to the questions that would be satisfying enough for me to, to really consider um, jumping into OER? Because if, if I could make the textbook as of high quality as the commercial textbook, uh, and it was going to be free to students, that seemed like a win-win. Um, I, I was making pennies on, on royalties, which again was not the, the main incentive for me to, to get the book out there. So I finally got to a point where I was, um, I had satisfied, I had gotten answers to all of those questions that were at, at a satisfactory level enough for me to be able to really start to think about how can I make my textbook an OER. Um, I'm going to jump in with a, a few um, other things that I learned along the way that really made me want to, to jump in. So one of those is first day access and post course access. Um, oftentimes students will either wait um, for a variety of different reasons to buy a textbook. Maybe they are waiting for their paycheck or they're waiting for financial aid to, to come through, or they're waiting to see if their instructor actually is going to um, use and assign the textbook. Some, some instructors will only use um, certain chapters. And so it's, it's challenging for students to pay $100 or $200 for a textbook only to be responsible for one or two chapters in it. Um, and then post-course access, I think, is also uh, very important for students. If students might be taking courses that span multiple semesters, or if they have to retake a course that they failed, um, if they are, are using a text for reference for an advanced course or um, studying for higher education entrance exams or certification exams, if they're changing careers, any of those reasons might mean that the student would want to have the content from their textbook after the semester that they originally had it. And in the world of digital access codes, it would mean that a student would have to purchase the textbook again to have the content. Whereas with OER, students have that textbook, they didn't have to pay for it in the beginning, and they they are welcome to have access to it forever. Um, <clears throat> the the last two things that really made me go, I, I, I think um, I, I refer to it as the the straw that 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 broke. Um, w one scenario was that I had a number of students that would tell me that. They went to the bookstore to buy the book, and the bookstore didn't have the book in stock. And, and I embarrassingly admit that I didn't believe the students originally when they said that. I thought that that was an excuse. Um, but I had heard it enough times over multiple semesters that I finally did an experiment. And I went to my bookstore maybe two or three weeks before the, the semester started, two weeks before, one week before, first day of classes, one week after, two weeks after, three weeks after. And sure enough, there were points uh, in time where the bookstore was out of the book. 
And um, I was really naively puzzled by that. Um, I came to realize that it's a fairly common practice for for-profit bookstores to purposefully understock the books. And that is generally because they are often able to have a, a percentage contracted with a textbook publisher to be able to return books um, that aren't sold. And so from a business model, of course, it's brilliant for a bookstore to understock because they're taking less chance to lose revenue. But from a student standpoint, um, again, for those examples of the students that might be waiting on a paycheck or for financial aid or for whatever reason, if they don't buy the bookstore, don't buy the book right at the beginning of the semester, and they go in a few weeks after and the bookstore doesn't have it, then the bookstore has to reorder and it takes more weeks for it to come in. The student gets further and further behind. And that is, um, is, is directly causing lack of success for, for many students. So I, I was honestly livid when I found that out, because to me, it seems like the, the real mission of the bookstore should be to have the book available for the student whenever the student wants or needs to have it. And then the, the very last one was, uh, I, I am a, I'm counseling faculty, so I see a lot of students in my office. And I've seen uh, thousands and thousands of, of transcripts. And so it's very rare that something will surprise me or there's something that I haven't seen before. This particular student, right when I was getting close to the cusp of going OER, came in and had something on the transcript that I'd never seen before. Um, the student had a transcript where they were taking five full-length semester classes, they dropped three of those only to re-register for different sections of the same three courses in the short, short-term um, uh, session of our, of our semester. So we have 16 weeks that are full-length semester, and then many colleges have short terms. This was an eight weeks or second eight weeks um, that they were taking the courses. And so in my head, I was thinking what would make this student think that they could pass these courses in the short term if they couldn't pass them in, in the long term? And, and why would they do that? And so I, I as respectfully um, and politely as I could, asked the student why, you know, please explain why you're, why you're doing this. And the student said, look, I'm really embarrassed to tell you this, but the truth is I can't afford my textbooks. And I thought I could skate by and pass these classes without the textbooks. And in these two classes, I can. But in these three classes, I cannot. And, um, and But now I have a part-time job. And I found that these three sections of the same courses taught by different instructors are using different textbooks that are cheaper than the other ones. And I think I can scrape up enough money to be able to purchase them. And, and to me, that was just groundbreaking. I, I, I feel like I should have known, uh, and, I, and, and I did know. I did know that many students were struggling with, um, with financial concerns, but I hadn't seen it quite presented like that. And it had a, a, a very big effect on me, a visceral effect. Um, I knew that that was not isolated, Three months after that student came in, I, I found out that 
the student was homeless. The student was living with their brother and their father in a tent in a park. And, um, and, and I knew that I needed to do something in order to try to better support the many students that are in those situations. And OER was, was one of those. Um, so coming full circle back to um, this textbook, I was fortunate because the university press had allowed me to retain uh, my own copyright for what was originally produced, this one unit study skills and time management text. Um, I then was approved for um, a one semester sabbatical leave at at my own college uh, in order to curate and a, a larger OER, this one was going to have a career unit and some finance units, um, a health unit. It was going to be all encompassing for this first year experience, uh, college and career success, um, really extended orientation for, for college students, um, especially community college students, but, but not limited. Um, I think it's also helpful for four year students. Um, and so that started, uh, it gave me an opportunity to kind of purview what, what else was out there. And uh, much to my delight, I found um, three already openly licensed college success textbooks. Um, two were from, um, were from Lane Community College in Oregon. One was from Lumen Learning, also in Oregon. And um, one of my my true favorites was uh, a text called Foundations of Academic Success, uh, Words of Wisdom, that was produced um, at SUNY. And Thomas Priester was the editor. And this was a non-traditional collection of essays from students, classified staff, faculty, and administrators that were all giving advice from their own personal experience about how to be successful in college. Um, and, and they were taking some unique aspect of that. And, and so I, I was able to take those essays and kind of sprinkle them throughout the, the text that I was curating, along with some high quality content from these other sources and my own original content and really try to put that Frankenstein, um, um, project together and, and make it consistent. Um, I, it, it was peer reviewed and, um, student reviewed, uh, went through an accessibility review and then was piloted in, uh, spring of 2018 and officially released in the summer of 18. And now this is my, uh, fourth semester using it. And, and much to my surprise, um, I, I humbly share that this text has already been adopted with with zero marketing, um, only from word of mouth at, at about 16 colleges and universities throughout uh, the United States. Most of those are California community colleges, but it has also been adopted in Oregon, uh, New Jersey, uh, New Hampshire, and there's a school in Michigan that, that will be adopting it soon. So that has been um, fantastically rewarding, and um, and I still feel very much like this project is a work in progress. So um, I, I'm always listening to students and instructors with feedback uh, and constantly 
editing that. And, and that brings me to, um, to share that the most common question that I get from other instructors who might have heard about it or who, or who are looking for a resource for their, their class or are looking for an OER is, do you have ancillaries for this project? Um, and so <laughs> I have been trying to diligently keep up with the great demand for the ancillaries. And, um, and that has, has really led me to, um, to be introduced to Lee Pierce. Um, and, and so I will, I will share that now there are PowerPoints that instructors can use for this text. There is a quiz bank um, for multiple choice questions for, for most of the chapters in the text. And then um, we're working on a cultural competency chapter in partnership with a global studies uh, fellowship at Stanford University. Um, that will be it's scheduled to be completed next month. And um, one of the ones that I'm most excited about is, is this project that, that Lee and I are, are collaborating on. It's an audio version of the textbook, which um, far as I know, there aren't very many audio versions of textbooks that are out there. And I think sometimes for good reason, because textbooks are honestly um, often stale and, and not, <laughs> not all that interesting. Um, this particular idea about an audio version was born from some students who said, hey, look, I have a lot of time that I spend commuting on the bus or waiting in a variety of lines, or I might listen to this if I have the opportunity on the treadmill or on an exercise bike or uh, in in." Uh, um, in other ways that students are, are often connected to um, audio audio versions and podcasts and, and music. Um, so if I had that audio version, I would listen to it. And, and their words, the students' words were, I think it would reinforce my learning. So to me, that was kind of a no-brainer to um, try to get started with this. And the truth is I didn't really know what I was doing because I am not an expert with audio or, or podcasts. Um, but I started to, to educate myself and, um, and the publisher for the project, the Revis community has put out a call for anyone that might want to collaborate on this. Um, and, and I'm so thankful that Lee answered this call, um, and, and as you may know, she's a public instructor, public speaking instructor. And so she is helping with um, allowing the opportunity for her students to record themselves reading uh, one of the chapters. And um, Lee, I'll, I'll let you take it from there because you know more about uh, that part than I do. Yeah, um, so I don't. I have to say, I talk about this project all the time. What I don't want to do is turn it into, but since we're on the New Books Network, and I think the purpose here is for the audience to get a sense of what the book is like, um, let's actually take it back to the book, if you don't mind. Sure. Sure. Okay. Because, yeah, and you and I have done this interview in a couple different contexts, so it's sort of hard to know who the audience is for each context. But <laughs> Well, and, and my apologies for rambling. <laughs> no. You don't need to apologize for anything. 
All right. So let's go back to the book. So um, there's a lot of great stuff here. And part of what I'm thinking about is if I'm a listener and I maybe advise students or maybe I'm a family member of a, of a student and I'm thinking about this as a potential resource that I could draw from or that I could give to people that I know. One of the sections, the very first section, is this collection called Words of Wisdom that you had mentioned previously. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about why you included the Words of Wisdom section, why you kicked it off that way, and what you think is valuable about that section of the book. Well, I think um, I, I mentioned that the this Foundations of Academic Success, Words of Wisdom, is a collection of essays. And I think that that's unique in itself because most textbooks – um, in, in from from my perspective, are coming at it from a here's the knowledge and it's being projected onto you and it's it's coming from a hierarchy. Um, whereas the collections of essays is much more like a casual conversation between two people on equal footing. It's one person giving advice to another person. And that was so, um, it was so interesting to me. It, it, it captured my attention. I thought it would capture my students' attention, uh, which it has. And, and I think that, um, students are not necessarily expecting that because most of the other textbooks are not like that. When they come across something that's different like that, it, it does grab their attention. And then it's much easier if the rest of the textbook is laid out in that traditional format that they're more apt to to dig in and read it. And they they get excited about looking for the next words of wisdom chapter that's coming maybe five or six chapters ahead. Um, because as I said, I, I sprinkled those in, in different places. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Um, my students have really liked that part of it. So I wanted to kick off with that section of the book because it seems to be the one that they most valued overall. I don't know if that's just the beginning of the book, so they never read the rest of it or not, which does bring me to the next question. So a lot of my students have mentioned that 60 chapters of kind of life advice can be daunting. So do you have um, particular parts of it that you focus on, or did you more imagine that this would be a resource, almost like a Wikipedia, and that different instructors or different uh, different administrators um, would draw the student's attention to different things at different times? Yes, um, that's that's such a great question. I think that um, one thing that I try to tell my students who might be intimidated by um, the, the full text is 456 pages, and uh, and as you said, it's 60 chapters. The chapters are short, so um, it, it is supposed to be bite-sized information that they can grasp. Um, that again has the the tone as though they're they're having conversation with someone instead of uh, a fire hose of information coming at them. Um, and then, um, shoot, I'm sorry, I forgot the second part of your question. Part of the question was just how how do you kind of help the students navigate the chapter? Oh yes. Uh, I, I, you were alluding to how what what other instructors were doing too, because the textbook is open, um, and and in this case it has the the 
greatest um, amount of flexibility for others to do what they want with it. it it's uh, the most flexible license that's out there of the of the Creative Commons licenses. So an instructor could um, make their own version of it. Um, they might not like chapter four and eliminate it or, um, or take some of their own content, uh, if it's not copyrighted and include it into chapter four and, and make it their own. And so that's another one of the really exciting things that is happening. There are, um, two projects that I know of, uh, where, instructors are collaborating and adapting um, to make their own version of a text. And, and you know, I think as, as much as my heart is with this project, what I would really love to see in the future is someone to make an adaption that I ended up thinking was of even greater quality than what I was able to produce. And the open, the open licensing allows that to be able to happen. So instead of this um, restriction that happens with copyright, uh, the open license allows for sharing, for remixing, for editing, for revising. And then uh, the intent is that it will be reshared out with the open community and benefit others. Awesome. So, um, that's cool. That's that's helpful for me too. So thinking about the audience for this, because you know, I think one thing that's important too, and, and and I really liked hearing you earlier talk about who it is that's getting this book and how we often think that we often think that the person on the other end of the syllabus, right, is someone who has the money for textbooks, who has three or four hours a day to sit in the library. We kind of forget that, like, no, a lot of them are driving from campus to campus. They may have kids. They may be very – they may have a lot of learned helplessness around college, and they may find a lot of this stuff very stressful, and they may not have the money to buy textbooks. So I'm also thinking that that what you're doing is you're c- creating the audience of the book in the material that you choose, because obviously you're choosing to include certain things and not others. And that's not only because you know who's on the other end of the book, but also because you're trying to think of who you want them to imagine themselves to be when they are going through this material, right? Because obviously we don't want to be pedantic and we don't want to be condescending and we don't want to be uh, discouraging, but we also don't want to treat them like children because obviously, you know, many of them, in fact, we forget this, are grown adults who are maybe even on a second career or maybe never imagined themselves in college. So can you talk a little bit about how you chose or rather did not choose material to put into the book? Yeah, I love the way you put that. You you put that much better than than I would have put it. Um, So thank you for that. I I think that, um, I, I think that one thing that I really strived to do was to, um, collect and curate content that was going to be easily understandable for a student that was going to, uh, deliver a message or strategy efficiently. And, and then again, I'm going to come back to that, that casual tone. I think, um, it it really resonates for students when, um, when they feel like someone is, is talking with them rather than lecturing at them. And and I think it's easy for textbooks to come across, uh, because of, of the way that they have often always been produced 
to come across with that talking at them. And so um, in addition to um, trying to, to identify the content that I wanted to use that was going to be easily understandable and uh, delivering information efficiently, I also wanted to have it come across like someone was talking to someone else. And, um, and, and honestly, I think that was a fairly large risk that I took because I didn't, I didn't really know how that was going to go over. Um, and, and so far, it has been extremely well received. Yeah, it's been interesting because you, you, you can't make everybody happy, right? So you have to, you really have to decide like, who is the student that I imagine getting the most out of this book? But, but even still, you know, I've had students who just think they're kind of above, I mean, I'm talking like they got the best college prep courses. They, everyone in their family for several generations has been a college graduate. You know, several people have advanced degrees and, when they get this book and they kind of poo-poo it, like, well, what, what do I need to know about how to do college? Uh, I'll point to a sentence and go, well, did you did you know this? Had you, or if you knew it, had you considered it? Or and are like, you well, doing the thing? Not. And I'm like, okay, then then maybe you're not too good for it. So you you do kind of see a way in which the book speaks to a, a certain subset, but also the way in which everyone can kind of benefit from this knowledge. I'm glad you brought that up. I I, ha- I do know exactly the students that you're referring to, and, and you're absolutely correct. You you cannot please everyone, um, but I have had a number of students who may have started at a pre- prestigious four year university. Uh, one of them was at an Ivy League school, and for whatever reason, um, was either transferred or was taking classes back at Grossmont. Um, uh, a two-year public community college, and um, usually were taking my class to um, to fulfill some kind of a requirement. It, it it wasn't something that that those particular students were seeking out on their own. But um, but I have had um, a number of those students come back with the realization of not only did this teach me things that I didn't know. Uh, but they also in their, in their evaluation will say, um, vindictively, this should be a required course for all incoming students. And I wish that I would have taken this course in my first semester. And, and, and that's been extremely rewarding. It's interesting because we, um, we don't have a first year experience for Geneseo except for the students who come in through our uh, opportunity and uh, equ- access opportunity and economic opportunity programs. And they find that the retention rates of the first year students are 10, 15% higher than the generally admitted population. And they, but they have a, a summer program, a first year experience, they have mentorship and a lot of the students that come in here, we're, we're, we're sort of assuming that they have everything that they need to succeed because they come from privileged backgrounds, but that's just continuously turning out not to be the case. And one of the things that this book does uh, is make it possible to create your own first-year experience for students without necessarily needing that course. You can, you know, my I've sent it to my advisees uh, when they have issues with me. Or, or with, you know, not with me, like interpersonally, but when they bring issues to my attention, I will 
talk to them one-on-one and I may suggest or draw from this book because again, it's just got so much material in it. And I also read it, have read it myself for a bunch of reasons. One of which is, have I thought about some of this stuff? So have I thought about uh, like the TED Talks on diversity were very valuable and now I incorporate some of them. So again, the other thing I want to point out to the listeners is that this book isn't just a bunch of advice kind of in a traditional prose format, but it has a ton of multimedia in there that is just, I mean, it's like a treasure trove of multimedia for all kinds of different topics. So do you want to say a little bit about the multimedia component? Sure. Um, I I think that um, I'm going to, (laughs) I'm I'm debating about whether I want to label anything. Let's say that the Netflix generation uh, appreciates audio. You know what they call them now, right? Probably not. After the millennials, do you know what the new the new ones that are coming in the next like they came in this year and, and the next couple of years are going to be? No, the iGens. The iGens. I, I have. I have hate heard. it. <laughs> right. I, it's yes. just. I mean, you may as well just call them like the Kleenex generation mm. or the linoleum or the Coke <laughs> the the Coke generation. I mean, it's just anyway. I, I won't get into it, but yeah, the iGens. I refuse to use it, so I'll be coming up with my own term. Um. Thank you for giving me the right label. I, I, I am well aware that, um, many current students are exposed to, uh, hours and hours of, um, video and multimedia and, um, mobile devices. And so, I debated for a long time as to what, if anything, I wanted to put in. I didn't want to do it for the sake of doing it. I only wanted to do it if if I thought it was going to be well-designed and be able to, um, again, reinforce the the concepts that I was trying to get across. And so I started with a pilot of a few TED Talks and a few YouTube videos. and. Um, could tell that the students really liked them. Um, the students also gave me feedback that, uh, that some of the videos were too long. And I said, well, (laughs) you know, you don't get to have the choice. I I understand where you're coming from. They, you know, they wanted, I think seven minutes max and, and most of the Ted talks are longer than that. Um, so there is sometimes a bit of a disconnect between the student thinking, okay, I'm, I'm investing 15, 16 minutes of my time towards this. Is everything that's in there going towards the concept that, that you're trying to teach me? And, and my honest answer is sometimes no. But if I was to try to splice it, 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 it would lose some of the integrity of the entire talk. So I have left those in there um, in their, in their full form. Um, but I think the, the feedback on, on the whole has been overwhelmingly positive and the students really like, um, seeing those videos and, and it's, it's a, a, a bit of a break of, um, only reading. And so I, I have some students that have never been exposed to Ted talks that, um, might think that 
TED Talks are boring, they get into one or two and, and they're hooked. And some of them are watching more TED Talks um, that, that don't have anything to do with, <laughs> with my class. So, um, you know, I think, again, that was, that was another risk that has paid dividends. And um, I, I do, I, I am conscious of how much um, I'm requiring them to watch. And, and I, I am also conscious that I don't want students to substitute and watch the video and not read the content. And so um, I, I strive for a balance where um, hopefully they're not just using the videos as, as say a cliff note version per se, um, but they're really getting, getting both. And, and the quizzes are designed so that they really need to be engaged with both in order to be successful. I mean, I think what's really interesting about this book is that it challenges a lot of the ways that we think about what college is for people. And one of the things is that when we talk about things like giving the multimedia content and being aware that they're only going to do so much and talking about how they can't afford the textbook and talking about how, um, you know, if you overassign the reading, they're going to turn off. Is there's this hasn't I think this this tendency to push back and say, well, aren't we just coddling them? And the the typical response I hear that isn't the one I'm going to suggest, right? Is well, we have to meet them where they're at, and if that's just what the the iGens are doing, then that's just I mean, I'd rather they learn something than learn nothing at all. But the the one that I want to point out, and I think this book does a great job, is that you know for centuries, if not thousands of years, like rhetorical theory, I'm talking Aristotle, I'm talking Quintilian, I'm talking the stuff that came out in the 50s and 60s, have talked about this principle of salience, right? So the idea that certain things are going to become important to you, and certain things are not. And there is not an unlimited... Do you, do you know how phone numbers were invented, the, for, the format of phone numbers? Have you ever heard the story? So... Um, when they were trying to come up with phone numbers, when they kind of realized that the old, I think they were like four-digit codes that came through the switchboard operator weren't going to work anymore and they were going to have to do area codes plus regional codes plus the four digits. So that, that gave us our, what is it, three, six, uh, ten, ten-digit codes we've got now. They actually ran a bunch of focus groups uh, trying to – because one of their biggest fears was like how many numbers is enough and how many is too many and what if everybody forgets their phone number, right? There was all this anxiety because as we switched from a switchboard method to an automated method, everyone was all freaked out that without without an operator there to get you right to the right person, you were never going to know how to get in touch with anybody. And so they did a bunch of focus groups and they and they, and they they figured out through a bunch of different options. And I think this probably would have happened, I don't know, like the 30s. Um, people could remember – three sets of numbers if they didn't have more than four digits. So they came up with three, three, four. And they figured at the time that would be enough numbers to basically let the phone system grow infinitely, which honestly, and it's worked. I mean, we have not yet run out of, I and mean, we're starting to run out of certain area codes. I know it's like a big deal now. People are are selling their, like certain area codes in LA and New York and Atlanta, people are selling off their area codes, like domain names. Um but honestly, it works so well, and we still haven't run out of a number system. So I just keep thinking to myself, if in the 30s they decided that the best way someone was going to remember their own phone number, a phone number that they use all the time, was a 334 rule, then I can only expect my students to remember and you got to think in in a semester, in a day. I mean, you, this is like where it gets tricky because you can scale it down to be too small. Three major ideas that each have about three to four components. 
That, that's kind of my math. And, and it's almost a century later. And I think the book really thinks about this principle of salience, right? Every chapter is short, not because they don't have a good attention span, but because A, there's 60 chapters and B, they only know and can process so much, not because they're lazy children, but because that's just human nature. And it does take advantage of the multimedia content because they are the the video generation, just like I was the MTV generation, just like my father was the the baby boomer. I mean, you, you got to make adaptations. And I don't think that's because they're stupider or lazier than the rest of us, but just because they process things through video. I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So again, I think the book does a great job of of meeting the students where they are, not because it's pandering, but because it understands that a lot of the reasons that these books need to be rethought. These textbooks are because college has traditionally presumed so much privilege of students in many ways to their detriment that it can't presume anymore. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, and it's, it was never my intention to hold, hold hands or, or coddle. But, but to your point, I think I, I was coming at it from what's the best way that I can try to deliver information in order for students to understand it, uh, retain it, and be successful with it. And, and so this was a product of that. And, and if, if people are going to accuse of, um, of coddling, then, <laughs> you know, so be it. But I, I think there's, there's proof that, exactly. that, that it is successful. The, the, I have some... Um, some not yet statistically significant uh, data because of, of a small sample size, but I have um, four sections where the success has just been off the chart. 72% wow. of my students with the OER were successful in those four sections where hmm. 48% uh, were, were successful within about 10 years of, of, classes that were taught. Um, in addition to that, 18% more were retained. Um, and about 27% more received an A grade, um, 8% more a B grade. Um, the C grades fell slightly. Um, and so if, if I was wondering, uh, which, which I was quite honestly, if this would have any effect um, the effect has been overwhelmingly positive. And in addition to the students and the faculty that have, have um, um, complemented uh, the textbook, um, the, the true reward is in more students being successful. And, and to me, it, it's a little bit of a no-brainer. It's kind of like if those statistics are, are accurate, if, if it's really true that 50 to 60% of the students are not purchasing the textbook um, because of, of the, the issue with the cost, and then all of a sudden you give everyone the resources, well, well to me, that's a no-brainer. They, they should do better, right? I mean, I, I, I would think that they would do better. And so that's what some of those statistics are showing. Great. I mean, I'm, I, I can believe it just through qualitative experience, but if you got numbers to back it up, I think that that's awesome. People will really, I think, respond to that, even if um, they're skeptical. Because I, for example, had someone recently say to me, well, uh, I want my students to have a print book. Because if they don't have a print book, then they don't have it in class and they can't reference it. So I'm not going to go to open educational resources because then they won't have a print book. And I was like, or you just do an OER and you print it. <laughs> 
you bind it and you charge them an extra eight bucks or give them the option, you know, let them, let them choose or, you know, get rid of your laptop policy and let them bring the ebook in or, or, or like I said, print it. And I mean, they're just, what I like about this book is it kind of appeals to my, um, like my uh, dodge and weave kind of approach, which is, you know, when, when people put up obstacles, like how do we work around the obstacles instead of just assuming that the obstacle is a sign, we should just stop pioneering new methods. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, that's another, I think another good point. So on one end of that, um, I do want print versions of my OER, anyone's OER to be available if students wish to have them. We're finding that maybe 10% of students prefer or are willing to um, pay a, a low fee really solely for the cost of the printing and the paper um, for that print version. And and I'm one who likes the print version. Um, I like to, to be able to feel and turn the pages, um, underline or highlight or mark things if, if I want to. So I, I want students to have that option. Um, and, and I was able to find um, a um, low-cost printer. So this 456-page text, if it's printed in black and white, costs $8.56. And then they can either purchase it at the bookstore with a small markup or um, from lulu.com for $4 shipping. Um, And then I think the, the, the other side of that that you were mentioning is when I find that I am educating and and advocating for OER, I run into a lot of faculty who may have had the same questions that I have. And I I find that there's a a pretty stark difference between faculty who are genuinely interested. They might not be there yet and they might never get there, but they're genuinely interested in learning to see if this might be a good fit for them and, and, and learning more about it to, to see if they can get some of those questions answered the same way that I did. There are other faculty that might say, you know, what about this and what about this and what about this and what about this? And, and it seems like no matter what answer they may be given or, or what I could possibly do to satisfy their concern, that they're not going to, to go. And, and that's okay. I, I don't think OER is for everyone, but you know, you, you were mentioning um, the, the, the person who was kind of not going for OER because print was a barrier. And, and for, for a lot of cases, we've solved some of that print um, challenge. I mean, I think that's great. And again, the purpose here is more to introduce readers or sorry, listeners to the book than it is to push OER, but you know, and, and we do, and I'm, we do. NBN is the New Books Network is incredibly grateful to university presses. And we understand that a lot of the costs that university presses incur have to do not with them being greedy or unreasonable, but just because it's just become incredibly difficult to get a lot of copyright permissions these days. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in fact, I have a university press that's doing my first book uh, based on my dissertation, and it's very hard. I mean, it's expensive to get images. And so we're just presenting in this project OER as another alternative and not something that anyone has to adopt, but something to think about. And more importantly, because you've chosen to do an OER book, anyone who's interested now can go to the Rebus community website. And if you just type, um, this will be a good a good wrap up because we're coming up on an hour. If you type Rebus, R-E-B-U-S, Blueprint for Success into your browser, I've tried it. You should immediately go to the site where you can download this book in a variety of formats. You can also look for a link in the show notes on the New Books Network. 
and it, you can get it right now. And you can send it to students and you can read different chapters and, and use the multimedia um, sources in your own teaching and your own research and your own daily entertainment and information gathering. And all that's possible because you chose to do OER. So again, just uh, all things to think about, although still University Presses, um, very, th- very grateful for their sponsorship of the, of the podcast. I had a wonderful experience with the University Press that I worked with, and and my reasons for going OER had had really nothing to do with the University Press. So um, I, I think there's a lot of really great work going on um, that University Presses are are contributing and collaborating uh, with, and and I appreciate that. Well, it's been awesome to have you on. Um, so again, I already gave the website, uh, or rather just the, I'm not going to read out a website, but if anyone's interested, you can go to the Rebus community, um, Blueprint for Success in College and Career, into your search bar, and you should be taken to a site that will let you download the book if you'd like to look through it. It's an absolute wealth of resources. And I always like to ask um, my guests whether they have a recommendation for us either for something that we should listen to or a book that might come on the podcast in a couple of weeks do you have anything so thank you so much for having me it's been uh, an absolute pleasure and i do have a podcast that i'm going to recommend it's called beyond the book and it's a copyright clearance center podcast um, with some inside information about the publishing industry on the whole Ooh, that's awesome. Man, I learned so much doing this podcast. <laughs> cool. I learned about Lulu.com. I learned about, uh, and what is it, Beyond the Press? Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book. Okay, Beyond the Book. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for coming on. I'm very excited to see about developments uh, with Blueprint for success. And you have a wonderful rest of March. Thanks so much, Lee. Bye-bye. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, bye-bye.